<laughs> but I've got one. <laughs> Three burly fellows on motorcycles pulled up to a highway truck stop. Can you hear me? Do I have to get this a little closer? Okay. They pulled up to, three guys on motorcycles pulled up to a truck stop and came in where a little guy was just sitting there minding in his own business, eating lunch. And they came up and took his food from him, started harassing him, and tried to provoke him to a fight. He didn't say a word, just got up, paid for his food, and left. And the men were very aggravated they couldn't provoke him to this fight and said, that wasn't much of a man, was it? And the waitress said, no, he really wasn't. And she looked out the window and said, and he's not much of a truck driver either because he just ran over three motorcycles. <laughs> oh, vengeance is mine. And you know, I'm so glad as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and what he shares about his life in 2 Corinthians 4 that he was not a man who took vengeance on people who mistreated him because he gave us the finest example other than the Lord Jesus of how to live the Christian life. And so as we go into this chapter, it's so good to be back together again, back into discussion. We just need to remember that the reason that he wrote this book was defend, to defend himself and his ministry against the false teachers who had wormed their way into the church and were teaching heresy and trying to discredit him. And in this chapter, Paul shows us the true nature of Christian hope. And hope isn't just merely wishing something would happen or be true. And it's certainly not wishing the end is going to turn out the way you want it to and that your circumstances are going to work out just fine. That kind of hope, frankly, would not have been enough for the Apostle Paul to keep him going in light of everything he faced. And that hope would not have been enough, this, that wishful thinking hope wouldn't have been enough for the Corinthian church to have survived the persecution that was coming its way. And so our unique Christian hope is a life-changing certainty that our future is the eternal love and glory of God and a new heavens and a new earth. And Paul shows us that there's a strange connection between our hope and suffering and glory. Somehow, in an un inexplainable way, they all go hand in hand. And once we're able to make this connection, I think it's going to have an enormous impact on how we view and face the suffering and adversity that we face in our lives. Now, this chapter closes in just absolutely beautiful soaring rhetoric. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, I don't know about you, but those words electrify me every single time I hear them. Anybody got goosebumps? I mean, they just electrify me. But when I look at my life, the life of my kids, the struggles my friends are going through, the life-threatening diseases, the situation our country is in, you look at the Middle East and wonder if it's going to blow up tomorrow, somehow those unseen things seem a long way away when there don't seem to be any easy answers in sight. And in verse 18, when Paul says he looks at the things that are not seen, he uses the Greek word skopeo. Sound like the word scope? Well, it is. That's where we get our word. And do you remember in seventh grade biology class, 
biology looking using a microscope for the very first time and if your biology class was like mine the very first thing we looked at was a drop of pond water you remember that <laughs> we it looked just like normal water until we put it on a slide and focused in and then we found that there was all kinds of life skittering and dancing around these are just some pictures some, there's actually quite quite beautiful things going on that you aren't even aware of and can't see unless you bring it into view and paul brought the realities those unseen realities in his life of faith into view through his faith hebrews 11 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen paul didn't have a microscope he didn't even have reading glasses but he did have razor sharp spiritual vision and he was clearly able to focus on the unseen and zoom in on the eternal and he did this in spite of but really more importantly because of living through difficulties trials and problems that we cannot even begin to imagine so we live in difficult times but Paul was literally running for his life much of the time and in 2nd Corinthians if you go on down to chapter 11 he tells us what his hazardous life was like five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I've spent in the deep I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers robbers my countrymen the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Well, I am exhausted and discouraged from reading this. I would have given up with the thirst and hunger and cold and exposure without food. That would have done me in, but he went through all of that. And so if we want to learn how to handle the suffering that is inevitably going to come in our lives, we need to learn how to use the same spiritual microscope that Paul did so we can get that perspective on what's unseen and eternal. And once he had that perspective, he was able to call all of that momentary and light affliction. Pretty amazing. And he had the ability to look at things differently because he looked through eyes of faith. So what we're going to... So the question is, do you see what I see? So what did Paul see and what did he know? And the very first thing that he saw was what had been entrusted to him. In verse 1 he tells us, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. And this ministry is the gospel. It's that life-changing and giving covenant that God gave that he described back in chapter 13. And Paul knows that he is the recipient of God's mercy. He has not earned this ministry. It was given to him by God. He was a persecutor of the church. He assisted in the murder of other Christians. But God in his mercy stopped Paul dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And his collision with the Son of God transformed his life. And Paul knew that the ministry he had was all by God's grace. But Paul also knew that he preached the, lot, the gospel with both his life and his words. He says, we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walk, walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, 
but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's a fancy way of saying that Paul did not change the gospel message to make his life easier or win favor with his audience the way the false teachers had done. He didn't adulterate the word of God by mixing it with human tradition, saying you need Jesus, but you also need to observe the dietary laws. He renounced the craftiness that characterized his enemies. Think how discouraging it would have been for Paul that he had to actually defend himself before the very people who should have been his most enthusiastic supporters. But he drew encouragement from the fact that he never compromised the truth and his conscience was clear before God. And then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to deal with the accusation that his message is veiled. And it's, a, it's apparent that um, his critics reason that because there weren't a whole lot of converts that there was some fault in the message itself and in Paul's preaching. And he's the first one to recognize he's not an overly impressive speaker. That was one of the very first things he wrote to the Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming, you to, the, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul acknowledges he is not a tremendous orator, but what he does not allow is that there is some fault with the message itself that he preached. If the content of his preaching is veiled, it is not because he did not present the truths of the gospel plainly. And that's because Paul was able to see and identify who the true enemy was. Verses 3 and 4 tell us, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Many people, including the false teachers, did not accept the gospel, and to them it was veiled. John 3, 19 and 20 tell us, Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who hates the light does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Satan aids and abets those whose hearts are already darkened by further blinding their minds. And then in verse 5, Paul reiterates, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So here's a contrast. To, to those whose minds had been blinded, Paul recognized the source of light that enabled him to see. Verse 6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it tells us that the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So it's only by God's grace that any of us can see God's glory in his son Jesus. And then Paul goes on to tell us how the, the light best shines. And he describes the paradox that he sees in life in Christian ministry in verses 7 to 15. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. 
God has put this costly treasure, this life and heart-changing gospel, in plain old terracotta pots. Now, if you go to London and you want to see the crown jewels, which is a fabulous thing to do, the first thing you have to do is you have to pay to get into the Tower of London, which has these massive walls that were built. Then you have to go through a gate, it's guarded, then you have to go wait in line to go into a specially constructed building where you go on a moving sidewalk and you look at the crown jewels and they are behind bulletproof glass. And they are displayed beautifully for all the world to see and all their magnificence shines forth. And that was the greatest treasure I could think of were the jewels of the British monarchy. What a contrast to an infinite treasure that God has given us in the gospel. And he puts it in jars of clay, our little falling apart human bodies. What a, what a contrast Paul makes. So the question is, why on earth does God do this? Why does he put something so priceless in a vessel so ordinary? And verse 7 tells us it's so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. He describes, Paul describes the irony and the realities of this life of faith. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And when we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, as we relinquish control and are, entrust ourselves to the Lord, the priceless treasure and the surpassing greatness of his power becomes visible to the entire world. Paul, this experience was so severe that Paul refers to it as carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Verse 10 says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So when we think of the dying of Jesus, we tend to think only of the cross. But I think Paul had other things in mind. I think he thought of the hardships, the troubles, and the frustrations that Jesus faced during his three-year ministry, the loneliness, the disappointments with his disciples. He was exhausted. He was constantly harassed by his opponents who were seeking to kill him. The crowd continually demanded miracles from him and didn't believe. They wanted just the next miracle. His family didn't believe him. Uh, his foes mocked and jeered him and beat him. His friends deserted him. Um, and then he died on the cross in that long, cruel, agonizing death. And Paul expressed this thought when he said, I die daily in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. And so I think Paul is acknowledging here the wearing effect that the gospel ministry had on Jesus mentally, emotionally, and physically the same way it had on him. And you know what? He's saying this isn't a unique experience because Jesus taught us that if any man wants to come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so the question is why? And the answer is so that the life of Jesus will be manifested in our body. Because people best see Jesus in us, not when our lives are going along swimmingly well and everything is perfect and happy, but when we allow Jesus to shine through us in the worst that life has to offer. And there's an important lesson here I don't want us to miss. The Corinthians, like many Christians today, believed that adversity was inconsistent with the Spirit-filled life let alone with gospel ministry. And the question is, how does God manifest his power? 
Paul's opponents claimed that it was through the working of signs and miracles and wonders. And Paul, on the other hand, maintained that God's power is best able to make itself known effectively through hardship and distress. And rather than invalidate his ministry, all of Paul's troubles actually confirmed and proved it. So in verse 12, Paul says, so death works in us, but life in you. And that's the, the gospel in a nutshell, death leading to resurrection. Paul is saying what happened to Jesus is happening to me, and his sufferings, when you think about it, are in large part caused be, because uh, his, he is ministering and he is giving spiritual life to other people. They're receiving it. And when you suffer, when you live unselfishly, your death does give life to other people. Just ask a mother who denies herself for the sake of her kids. She's giving life to her child. Um, but not only does when you die to yourself, does it give life to other people, Paul also tells us in Romans 5 that it gives life to you. He says, not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So the last thing that's produced in our lives through tribulation is hope. The kind of hope that doesn't disappoint. Well, why aren't we disappointed? Because we worship a God who has suffered. We worship a God who himself has suffered. And he knows and understands what we're experiencing. When we suffer, God pours out love in our hearts. And that love and comfort is a luxury that Jesus himself was denied on the cross. He cried in agony and was forsaken in the greatest suffering the world has ever known. He was utterly abandoned and forsaken. So he knows what we most need when we suffer. Uh, and that is the assurance that we are never going to be cast off by God. What greater gift could God give us than to pour out his love in our hearts during our times of suffering? There's no greater gift. Paul then goes on to answer the question, why preach the gospel if it leads to ridicule, personal deprivation, and hostility? And he tells us in verses 13 and 14, but having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us to, with you. Paul is saying he's not alone in his opinion. He finds the same spirit of faith that this psalmist had. And he, he quotes just a short portion of the psalm, but it's worth taking the time at some point to read in its entirety. He, he was in the same situation. He'd been falsely accused, he'd been slandered, and he was facing death. But in spite of that, he had a faith that prompted outspokenness. And so then we asked the question, well, what is gonna prompt someone to speak out regardless of the, these terrible consequences? And I think this is really the heart of things here. Paul says it wasn't a matter of feeling that he was the best qualified or he had su su superior credentials, but it was rather a conviction that he had that constrained him to speak out. And what was this conviction? It wasn't simply the belief that Jesus is the Christ, but it was the certainty that 
He who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. See, Paul's confidence was based on the resurrection of Christ, which in turn guarantees the resurrection of all of us who place our faith in him for salvation. But Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead was the foundation of everything, everything that Paul taught and believed. Okay, as um, we move on in the Greek, verse 15 turns out to be just an absolute grammatical nightmare. It was kind of humorous studying it. And I think I got more confused than it was worth being confused about. So I went to the Living Bible and it worded it very nicely. These sufferings of ours are for your benefit. The more of you who are one to Christ, the more there are to thank him for his great kindness and the more the Lord is glorified. And it, it just continues to underscore the selflessness of Paul's ministry. So then in verse 16, we're going to look at Paul's view through the scope. But he, he returns to um, the initial thought of verse 1, where he, he summarizes again, Therefore, we do not lose heart. And he's, he's, he's just finished giving us these reasons that he doesn't lose heart and give up in spite of all these difficulties. Because the first thing is, he was shown mercy on the road to Damascus. He is definitely has the privilege of being God's instrument for the revealing of the life of Jesus. And the third thing is, God's glory grows as more people believe in Jesus. So he, then he's going to go on and provide the Corinthians with yet another reason he does not lose heart. He says, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Well, I have news for you. Our bodies are wearing down. You know it, and I know it. And it doesn't matter if you have a facelift, a tummy tuck, if you can wriggle your body into spanks, <laughs> how much money you spend on cosmetics to disguise the wrinkles, how many miles you run or aerobics classes you attend. Your body and my body, they're all decaying. It's inevitable, and no one can stop it. But what a contrast that he paints to what's going on in the inner man that's being renewed day by day. And Paul's conveying an idea is we're going downhill day by day. What he is saying that spiritually when we're being renewed, we're going step by step in the opposite direction. It's, he's, he's projecting a, a progressive renewal and it matches it step for step. And the, the Greek word for renew means to make new again. And it's the same word that he uses in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Same word. And so this renewal comes as we read, study, and meditate on God's word and his truth. It means that we're going to think differently because our minds have been changed or transformed. And it's always used, this verb is always used in the passive tense, which means we do not renew ourselves by positive thinking or willpower, but we're renewed by God's Spirit who makes us increasingly like Jesus. And because Paul says day by day, what that means is we need to be in God's truth every single day. And then he goes on to say, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But it's only because of that inward renewal that we just talked about that in the inner man that Paul can see his affliction from that point of view. And he calls it momentary, he calls it merely light, 
and momentary. And the noun for affliction means pressure or oppression. And he uses this word eight times in 2 Corinthians, and it usually describes the troubles and the hardships he experienced as a preacher of the gospel. And the word for momentary means just for an instant. Here's a picture of what just for an instant means. That's how he described. I don't want you to forget that. Um, oh, I just killed somebody. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's momentary. It's a blip. It's an absolute blip. Compared to, because they're light, they're easy to bear, and they're without substance. Can you capture that? I mean, you, that's how ephemeral it was to Paul. As opposed to... Um, the eternal weight of glory. Somehow this produces something that's very, very heavy. I've lost the heavy. I lost my heavy. But something so heavy you can't even pick it up. And the term for glory, it's a play on words because the term for glory in the Old Testament means heavy or weighty. So what Paul's saying is this little blip over here is producing something so heavy and weighty that it's to the nth degree. It's far beyond all comparison. And you put in this and you get out something on the other side that you can't even begin to imagine what it is because it's so glorious, so, so different, and so heavenly. The troubles that we experience magnificently get transformed. And so in Romans 8.18, um, which is a companion passage, Paul tells us, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so what Paul tells us is kind of what we've talked about, that suffering leads to glory. But I want you to look at verse 17 because he takes it up a notch. And he says that the suffering that we endure is what actually produces a glory. Momentary light affection produces for us an eternal weight of glory. The gospel takes suffering and affliction and produces glory beyond anything we can imagine. There has never been a more astounding view of suffering than this in the entire history of the world. If you look at the Greek philosophers who, were, who uh, taught in Paul's day, the Stoics said, well, you accept suffering. You just have to put up with it. You accept it. The Epicureans said to avoid it. The masochists, they were crazy people. They said embrace it. <laughs> but the, Paul is saying that the gospel doesn't say to accept suffering. He doesn't say avoid it. He doesn't say embrace it. He says the gospel engulfs suffering. It takes suffering and transforms it into glory. But that can only be seen with eyes of faith when we bring unseen things into view. Paul is saying that um, we do not lose heart because every single moment of our affliction when we, in the path of obedience, whether it's from sickness or slander, from fallen nature, from fallen people, all of it is meaningful. That is all of it. Because unseen to our eyes, except through the eyes of faith, it's producing something, and it's preparing something for us in eternity. So we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. 
So let's go back to the microscope where he contrasts these two realities. One is temporary or transitory, the other is permanent or eternal. The temporary reality is our present existence, which declines with the passage of time, but the permanent or unseen reality is that overhaul in our hearts and spirits that the Spirit of God is undertaking as our minds are being renewed. So the facts about Paul's suffering are the same things. The discomfort, the hunger, the persecution, being jailed, all of that is temporary. All of that is so, so ephemeral. The world looks at that kind of suffering, though, and says it's meaningless and pointless and you should despair and give up. But Paul looks at that suffering through the microscope of faith and he sees unseen and eternal things. He sees all kinds of life in that drop of pond water. He sees the promise of God. He sees the truth of God's glory being revealed in the Lord Jesus. He sees the resurrection and the certainty of a new heavens and new earth. He sees the ultimate defeat of evil and the unending glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he knows that this temporary pain and suffering is producing a weight of glory far beyond his wildest imagination. So application, and I've got handouts for you um, that will get to you. But the first thing is, the ultimate purpose of life is to glorify God. And since God is the source of all goodness, his glory is ultimately the wellspring of all joy we ever experience. And so what God does for his own sake to bring glory to his name benefits us. So whatever God glorifies him is good for us. And that means the very first person purpose for our suffering is the glory of God. Secondly, we need to remember that life is an agonizing struggle for faith in Jesus. We all struggle with the sin of unbelief. Oswald Chambers said we are almost incurably suspicious of God. And during times of suffering, our flesh will always question God. Our flesh never changes and it will never be a believer. Our flesh can't see past the present moment and it will always want us to give up or yield to the temptation to believe Satan's lies about God and his goodness. Three, a proper perspective produces courage in suffering. How do we know when our perspective is off? Well, I have to do is look at your life. If you see bitterness, pettiness, hatred, and unforgiveness, you know that suffering is not doing the work that God intends for it to be doing. So the question is, is your character changing to be more like Jesus? Fourth, suffering reveals the idols of our heart. God shows us who or what we are trusting in times of suffering instead of him. Understanding God is never a prerequisite for trusting God. I don't understand, but I know I can trust him. Fifth, we, and finally, we know that God can be trusted in the midst of suffering because God himself has firsthand experience with suffering. Jesus learned obedience through the things suffered. He knew what it was like to be completely misunderstood by his best friends and rejected by his family. He was tempted and assaulted by the devil. He was abandoned, denied, and betrayed by all the people he poured his life into. And on the cross, he was forsaken even by his father. In his death, Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. 
and that is to be cast away from God for eternity. Job was a man who was well acquainted with suffering, and at the end of his ordeal, God questioned Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job finally responds, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Henry David Thoreau said, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. So my question for us and my challenge for all of us is, can you bring your suffering and affliction under God's microscope and can you look at them differently through eyes of faith because we've studied this chapter? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of Paul. We thank you for the experiences you took him through and how you opened your word to us to teach us such marvelous things. I pray that you would help each one of us look at the affliction and difficulties in our lives as just that ephemeral vapor. And I pray that you'd give us the eyes to see the unseen eternal glory that you are working in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.